welcome to the TransUnion podcast. My name is Harriet Sloan. I run the fraud and identity consultancy team here in the UK. Really excited for this episode that we're bringing to you today. I'm interviewing the author and investigative journalist, Jamie Bartlett, who specialises in cybercrime. And Jamie's got some really interesting views in this space. He's done some amazing work on some recent documentaries and podcasts and really interested to get his views on some of the trends and concepts that we're seeing in the market today. Hi, Jamie. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. We're a global information and insights company based in the credit reference space, but also work in fraud and financial crime and helping other businesses prevent fraud and financial crime. So really interested to talk to you today because I guess our view of the the fraud and financial crime landscape is very much from that consumer services angle, you know, financial services, online gaming, all of the different kind of verticals that we work in. But of course, your view of fraud and financial crime is probably more from the perspective of the the kind of hardened criminals um, and then <laughs> yeah. looking at how that affects I guess the the consumers and consumer kind of services that that we work in so I think it'd be really interesting today to see how our perspectives align and and, and to get your viewpoint yeah. on, on what we're seeing in the market yeah my background's been in just looking at this from the perspective of the criminals essentially and it's been quite a long time I've been doing it I mean, at least a decade now it's just sort of studying strange internet subcultures and that sort of morphed into trying to understand what's going on on the dark net and and how cyber criminals operate and i've just always been interested in how creative and innovative those sort of subcultures are and i think for some people there's a bit of a misunderstanding about online criminals i mean they're generally business people they're smart they are thoughtful you can almost predict how they're going to behave because they behave like a lot of normal businesses do and just trying to understand that and bring some of that to life so people realise that when you're talking about cybercrime, you are talking often about other people at the other end of the line and how they're thinking and what they're doing. It brings it to life to people because sometimes it can feel a little bit like it's just some abstract threat rather than real people out there doing real things. I'm, I'm curious, actually, have you ever been a victim of fraud? You know what I have and I, don't, I often don't talk about it because I've, I suppose because of the work I do, I, I feel a bit embarrassed to admit it. You know, people sometimes look to me for advice, but... It's quite good to be honest about it because I think it's vital that everyone understands that no matter how smart you think you are or how well you think you understand this area, everyone can fall victim to this. So there's a couple of good examples. One is not my fault at all. I, I'd actually bought a small amount of cryptocurrency very, very early on as part of research for a book that ended up being worth about a million dollars and was then uh, uh, hacked from an exchange platform where those cryptocurrencies were hosted and it all went. (laughs) But the other one was a really clever, a really clever one. And it sort of played on my own weakness and, and sort of laziness, I suppose. I was on holiday in Sri Lanka and I got home. I hadn't been checking my bank or anything. And I saw there'd been a transaction for two and a half thousand pounds for a dinner. And I phoned up the bank and I said, there's no way I spent two and a half thousand pounds at this restaurant for a dinner. The pin, your pin number was used. And I I looked into it and I realized I was at that restaurant. And what I think happened was the people working there had put in pounds rather than the local currency, given me the the pin, put down 2,500, which I thought was in the local currency, just put in my pin number, all went through and um, couldn't get it back. And you know, the thing is what I could have done because this is the way that one of the things I write about now is that sort of cybersecurity is almost like a branch of PR. 
I could have kicked up a fuss on Twitter and at yeah. HSBC and you've got to give me my money back. And so I don't want to get involved in any of that. That was my mistake, really. I didn't check. I was lazy. I was on holiday. I wasn't looking at those things. And but the thing is, you you really got to learn from those moments and you've got to tell people about them because I think sometimes with cybersecurity, people are embarrassed to be honest about it. And then everyone thinks I'm too smart. It wouldn't happen to me. I think that's the first time I've ever told anyone about that one. So uh, there's a first there, guys. World exclusive. (laughs) TransUnion heard it first. (laughs) Yeah. Well, glad glad we got to that early doors. Thanks for sharing that. And I think what you've touched on there around the embarrassment element of it and shame, you know, because people don't want to report it because they're embarrassed. Um, But also from the the kind of criminal angle, I think the digital era has just made it so kind of international. There's no borders with fraud yeah. and financial crime anymore. The criminals don't don't acknowledge borders of, of anything, whether it's countries, you know, obviously law, whether yeah. it's industry borders, you know, they don't look at, oh, we're going to hack a bank and then we're going to hack a telephone company. They look at it as a network of opportunity and a a, a web of things to to tap into to get ultimately what they're looking for. So, yeah, I think actually measuring the size of the problem these days is is a lot harder. Yeah, I often get asked of how big is the problem? And I used to, I suppose, follow every new report about cybersecurity trends, but there's quite a lot and it's increased by 100% since 2021 or it's increased by this amount and these numbers and every business is hacked into 500 times a year and you've got so many different ways of trying to measure it and the cost of it is difficult to measure and people don't always report it because of that embarrassment problem. And I know companies are supposed to by law, but sometimes they don't, or sometimes they're not even aware. And so it's very, very hard to get a firm handle on just how big the problem is. But the way I look at it rather is just to think about the very broad trend we know that it's increasing. <laughs> I mean, it's quite, I know that's very vague. But it's it's increasing year on year and it's increasing for pretty obvious reasons as well. I mean, you can think, look, there's there's more data available that people create, that they put online, that they share with companies. There's more companies now that are forced to do business online. There are more connected devices in the home. So internet enabled devices constantly going up. The value of data is going up. You put those things together and it's fairly obvious that cybercrime has been and is going to continue to get worse and worse and worse or a bigger and bigger a threat. And in some ways, it's replacing old types of crime. I don't know if you remember, but when I was when I was a teenager, my number one fear was my car being stolen. I mean, that was the terror. Your car was the big thing, your car getting nicked. But thankfully, we don't really have to worry about that much anymore. Instead, it's going to a restaurant and realising that in another country, two and a half thousand pounds been stolen without you even realising it. And so, yeah, you, you can have little subtrends. I mean, is ransomware increasing as a specific subset of a problem? Yes, you can sort of measure that slightly more, maybe, and the number of companies that have been targeted and the number of companies that have paid ransoms and how big those ransoms are. And you can get a bit of a feel for some of the subsectors of cybercrime. But the simplest way, I, I think, is let's just all assume that everyone's getting targeted a lot of the time. And that's not going to change. It's not going to change at all. Quite scary, isn't it, when you think about it like that? Yeah, it, yes, it is. And I probably used to be far more 
pessimistic about it all. I used to think it was all over. We're never going to be able to deal with this because it's a numbers game. You know, it's it's an it's a cat and mouse game. There's a lot of very smart criminals out there. A lot of people going online all the time. We'll never keep up with this. But the cyber sector community, if you like, the cyber security sector has also really increased its size and range and scope and the services that it offers. I think that sort of constant threat, it's not scary so much as it just changes how businesses and individuals have got to think about it, you know, and how you respond to it. So I don't think people should just sort of hide away and try and go offline and never deal with anything. It's more just thinking through what's our response in a world of sort of constant, evolving, never-ending online threats. And, and it can be managed and you can tip the scales a bit in your favour. But let's not ever assume we're going to sort of fundamentally solve the problem. Yeah. We've just got to manage it. Where do you think we're at from a general consumer education perspective? Because I think for me, that's something that has changed significantly or ramped up significantly since COVID with the the absolute kind of explosion, if you like, of scams throughout yep. the, the COVID lockdown period. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of banks kind of up in their education in that space. You know, the, there's the Ant and Deck advert from, from <laughs> there, wasn't there? And, yeah. you know, a lot of banks now have even got their own kind of fraud awareness apps. You know, there's a lot of in-flight messaging now when you're going through a transaction. And on the scam front, the, the recent UK finance report, you know, suggested that the growth rate of scams is actually starting to, to slow down. It's still increasing, but it is it is slowing to a yeah. certain degree. Um, and obviously, you can never finger point exactly what's causing that slowing yeah. down. But, you know, it would be reasonable to assume that maybe education is is having a part to yeah. play in that. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually. It sort of relates back to your last question. I mean, the lack of borders when it comes to international cybercrime, that the fact that you know the majority of these crimes where the victim is in the UK will be perpetrated outside of the UK means that the ability of law enforcement to actually stop it or to prosecute criminals and bring them to justice or to return the, the victim's losses to them is very, very hard. And the success rate is very, very low. I've, I've seen stats about like fractions of a percentage of successful prosecutions for fraud cases in the UK. And that is because the British police or it's very hard to follow the the thread and, and and attribute crimes to certain people and it's even harder to extradite them and it's even harder to find their assets and return them and the thing what that has meant is that businesses and individuals realize that they they're kind of on their own you know it's your responsibility and as a result of that more and more companies have turned to we've got to educate people we've got to get people smarter we've got to get them to be safer themselves and just get the basics right let's just Let's just be a little bit more sceptical about the things we see online and let's not just click on every link that turns up and let's put two-factor authentication in and all these different basic things that you can do. Everyone is now pushing for that because they realise that is the best way to dampen down the sort of problem. And I, I, I think, yeah, when you look at the numbers, such a high proportion of people have been victims of online crime now. And my view's always been that you can give as many lessons as you want, you can give as many abstract cybersecurity classes as you want, but nothing is as powerful as having fallen victim to it yourself. Nothing is quite as good at embedding in your mind that need to be cynical and skeptical and careful and than when you actually lose 2500 pounds in a single silly transaction. Yeah. And I think that's 
probably the reason why people are getting more and more clued up to this stuff. There's a risk there as well. I mean, you'll remember during the COVID lockdown how quick cyber criminals are to latch on to whatever's in the news. Yeah. So the minute the Omicron variant appears, yeah. suddenly everyone's bombarded with text messages saying, click here to sign up to the NHS booster jab. And so many people did that because it's this emotional reaction. Cyber criminals are brilliant at psychology as much as they are at technology. They know how to sort of trick people into making very silly decisions at short notice, and they play to that. You'll also remember during the lockdown when everyone was getting messages about parcels not being delivered and click here to because we yeah. were all getting parcels delivered. Yeah. So it seemed quite plausible. And, and that's what criminals do. They look for these opportunities, that really basic stuff to just make you sort of lose that critical thinking for a second and then they're in. But because so many of us were victims to that or we saw that, I think it made us all a lot more sceptical. And, and I, I think that would account for why, like you say, some studies show that people are wising up to this. The risk is we don't trust anything at all. <laughs> and every single time, actually, someone does try to call you and try, you, you will ignore the phone calls, ignore the messages. <laughs> so there is a downside to that, which is, which is quite important and can be costly from a business perspective as well, because, you know, every time the bank calls me, I don't even want to talk to them because I just don't believe it. It's them. Yeah. And that's the challenge for businesses, I think, to sort of work out how you know, convenience versus security balance that you're always trying to, to find the right spot. It, it's a really interesting one from banks or any any really service provider, and the, certainly the clients that we serve have got this constant battle of consumers who expect and want you know the best customer experience. They want the most the smoothest digital experience you can have but they also want you to protect their data. And this accountability of what you kind of said there around, you know, it is on the individuals to as, as much as it's on businesses to adhere to regulations and to yeah. do their best to prevent fraud and financial crime. I think perhaps that element of accountability to us to look after our own stuff yeah. as consumers is perhaps a little bit getting missed at the moment. I think something that I kind of see in for our clients quite often is that fraud and financial crime teams often have a bad rep in the in the organization yeah. so they're almost seen as like the fun police the, pe the people that are getting in the way stopping the top line numbers going up uh, impacting yeah. onboarding rates and all of that and actually you know fraud and financial crime teams are enablers of growth for, for businesses but there is often this kind of bad relationship and it's just got me thinking and I remember in our pulse survey that we did last year this really surprised me that one of the questions was to ask respondents to rank what's most important to them when they're picking an online service provider and the the top answer by I think at least half was security of my personal data and actually yeah. customer experience was fourth in that list and it just wow. makes me think is there an opportunity for fraud and financial crime to actually almost become like a almost a marketing tool yeah. for businesses something for businesses to to shout about because I think back to the education piece yes we're all becoming more aware of what fraud looks like avoid it and like you say that kind of general awareness it's almost like the fraudsters have done us a favour throughout the last few years because they've bombarded yeah. us so much that yeah. we've, kind of, yeah. we've had so much to learn from we've had, lot, we've had a lot of training haven't we so thanks yeah. thanks yeah. for that fraudsters but or the gap I think for me at the moment 
is we understand what we're looking for, but we don't understand, um, or consumers generally aren't clear that what preventing that means for them as a as an online consumer and, and what that means for their experience. So, like as an example, I, I was in the airport and an airport last year. I put my phone in the tray beneath the thing and then put my bag on top. And before I knew it, the trays below, I didn't know they were moving. So it had gone like two or three people down. And this bloke's like, this not sm- This isn't my phone. And then before I know it, I'm like, it's my phone. And there's multiple security people around us making me call the phone from someone else's phone to make sure it's my number, making me unlock it to make sure that it's clearly mine using my fingerprint. And I... I enjoyed that experience because I was emotionally invested in my safety in that airport. I understood where the step up was coming from. I understand the consequences of those checks not being done in the worst possible scenario. So I almost welcomed that friction to my experience because I was emotionally invested and I understood what they were trying to prevent. I think there's a real opportunity at the moment for consumer education to kind of branch out into that so that consumers get not just an understanding of what a scam looks like or what a potential fraud looks like, but also what that's going to mean for them as a transacting consumer. If there's a bit more friction, that means mm-hmm. whoever you're, whatever service provider you're using is putting more stop stuff in place to, that's right. to look, look after your personal data. I totally agree with that. And I think that what would make that work is for a bit like with you and, and you're being sort of obviously being invested in that is to make sure that where there is friction in the system and there are extra checks and and there are delays, people really understand why. And almost that they've opted into that, if you like, that they've decided, yeah, I'm happy for you to actually call me to verify this transaction every time because I'm so worried about fraud now. I hear it all the time in the news and I'm happy for that extra delay. If they don't know why it's slow or they haven't chosen that path, then I think that's where they might get frustrated. I mean, I would be delighted if my bank literally phoned me up every single time I made a transaction. It wouldn't bother me. Or maybe a transaction over a certain amount of money. But every time anything over 100 quid, say, I actually get a phone call from the fraud. I'd be delighted. Thank you so much for phoning me up. I don't mind the delay. What would be great is if I had a little dial where I could kind of dial it up or down and say, I, I want to be contacted. I, I want to have a one-time only pin for uh, you know, every, every transaction that's over £50. And next week, I'm going to make it £100. And the, I'm in control, if you like, of deciding that balance between convenience and security. And that that would be, a, I would find that to be a real plus. And I, and I think a lot of people would too, not just because of our general awareness about fraud and, and and everyone knows if they haven't been a victim of it themselves, everyone knows someone who has. Yeah. And I think telling those stories, again, going back to that is really important, being honest and open about it, because then people realise it could happen to me as well. And I think looking ahead, when you think about how much more of our life is going to be online, so more of our daily appliances, whether it's at home or in the workplace, one day we're going to wake up and go down for our morning coffee to find out that our smart coffee machine has been hacked into and we can't get our caffeine until we pay a ransom in cryptocurrency and our baby monitors are going to be smart baby monitors and our cars and our even our clothes are going to be smart internet-enabled devices and just more and more of life becomes digital. It also becomes a bit more personal. It's clearly going to become a bigger issue, going to become more embedded in our lives and we're going to worry about it even more than we do now. And so having security as a sort of choosable feature 
an yeah. option, something you can control in some way, I'm I'm so sure will become a, a premium for for businesses. But 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 I also think that all all businesses, given the trends, given the scale of the threat, given people's concerns, given the fact that it's very hard for the police to actually deal with this, it does become like a PR exercise as well for businesses just to have demonstrated that they take this. I talk about it as they take the issue of data security as seriously as their users do. If it is the top concern for most people, as you said in that survey that you've yeah. done, it's their top concern. Is it the top concern of every business? Does it sort of mirror? And if it's not, you might think, well, it's slightly out of sync, isn't it? We yeah. need to make sure we need to make sure that we take this as seriously. This is as important because when something goes wrong, as it often will do, I don't think people will blame the business unless you were seen as acting incompetently, not getting the best in class, not doing the basics, not communicating with the customers about what had happened. That's when they're going to be really angry with you. Yeah. And that's when it's a PR disaster. If you've shown that you had the, you know, you had the best service providers, you did everything right, followed it to the team, you had a plan, it's the hacker's fault. It's not the business's fault. We understand this can happen to anyone now. So that's why even for small businesses, it's so important to be seen to do the right thing here. Because when the worst happens, which it probably will, you've got to be able to defend what what you did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What you what you were saying there around ownership and accountability of our own security, it kind of got me thinking about, I guess, digital ID and, and where that's all heading and the fact that this kind of long-term view that consumers own their identity. It's not owned by the credit reference agencies and um the banks, as I guess as it is in their infrastructure today. Um and I guess it almost goes and there, I mean there are businesses out there already, like there's a, a couple in the US, I think, but um, and, and and some starting to emerge in the UK where you can almost like lock down your credit file, for example, and yeah. you have to go through a an app verification every time um, you know there's an online check going against your credit file so that you can authorize it, and that's almost what you're talking about there in in a sense, yeah. isn't it? It's bringing that that ownership into the the consumer so that it's not all on to that's on the right. businesses to protect, and you know, with digital ID and the whole kind of promise that that offers. It, it almost goes hand in hand that, you know, if you're going to own your identity in that sense, you also have to own the security of that. Yeah. And one thing we'll definitely see more of in the market, I think, is 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 individual cybersecurity insurance. So sort of hand in hand with being more responsible and being ultimately the person that is in charge of your own digital ID, which you should be really. But it's very hard at the moment to know even where to begin with that. But we just, again, thinking a little bit further down the line as demographics change as well, and more people who are used to all of this uh, make up a higher proportion of the of the market, it will become more and more part, probably part of a sort of your citizenship education at school is how do I look after my data? How do I know what's out there? There's going to be intermediary companies that will say, we'll manage it for you. Give us the authorization to go and find what companies hold about you. We'll we'll find all the different services that are out there that will give you a bit more control over it. We'll take a small cut, uh, thank you, or you can pay us a, a monthly subscription to do this for you. Gives you a bit more control, but without needing to do it all yourself. Because I couldn't go around and find every bit of data about me and what every credit agency had about me and authorizing every single report. That's, it'd be impossible. But I could say to a company for £10 a month, would you just kind of try and manage that all for me a little bit and let me know if I need to do anything. So I'm sure there'll be more and more companies that sort of stand between consumer and business and sort of try to manage for the consumer. 
And I, I think digital ID and the idea that you could sort of verify your identity without giving away everything about yourself is one of the most interesting areas of sort of internet research at the moment. What role do you think decentralized technology, blockchain technology has got to play in that landscape? The biggest problem I see just broadly in internet life at the moment is is how we verify information. We're sort of entering into a world where it's going to be increasingly difficult to believe what you see, to believe what you read. The growth, which has been long predicted, but it seems to have suddenly jumped into the mainstream of chat GPT and synthetic media and deepfake videos. It just means we are about to be sort of flooded with highly believable but synthetically created content. It'd be hard to know whether I'm talking to you or a machine version of you or whether you're talking to me or whether that phishing email that's come through uh, is no longer the Nigerian prince's email that everyone's received. It's in fact a brilliantly believable video call from your uncle. This is the reality and this is what it's going to look like in five yeah. years' time. Uh, you'll get a Skype call and it, and it will be from someone you recognize who'll talk to you sort of lucidly and you'll believe it. And then you might send that 10,000 euros over to them. And um, It's going to be very hard to know what's real and what's not real. And that's obviously going to have massive ramifications, I think, especially for phishing attacks more than anything else. But it also, just in terms of just as we go about our lives, knowing what who to trust and is this sort of, is this person who they really think they're... Blockchain technology, to me, what is one of its possible uses is as a solution to some of that, strangely. Blockchain technology is simply based on the idea that you can create digital databases that you cannot censor, which are chronologically ordered. Yep. So you could have you could have versions where you say, well, the original ver- version of this video, I found it. This is this is the original hash of it. This is the, if you like, the one that was first uploaded. All these other ones don't match to that. That was the first one. So these ones have all been altered. These are synthetic fakes somehow. And there could be, I don't know how you then turn that into a sort of a customer product or how you, but something tells me that blockchain technology is going to be really useful for helping us work out what is authentic content and what is not using these chronological databases. So that's where I see blockchain as playing a role in authenticating information, which I think is going to be one of the biggest challenges for basically every company out there in the next five to 10 years, not knowing what to trust. And blockchain really is about trying to establish a system of trust. That's what it was all about in the beginning. You know, I was at a conference uh, a few weeks back and um, they'd done a kind of investigative piece into, you know, how obviously the lack of regulation around cryptocurrency just makes it an absolute haven for criminals to launder money through. um, Mm. And this kind of whole argument of, well, you know, it's on the ledger, so it should be traceable, but also the lack of regulation around around it at the moment means it's it's actually not because it's possible to change so many things and to show upon it anonymously. And, and that makes it a, a haven at the moment. And then there's all the, the other end of it. W- will that become our main currency? Are we going to move to cryptocurrency? <laughs> What's it going to enable? For me, I just think it will be consumer-led. And I think as as more and more consumers are using it, maybe it's showing up on gaming sites and, and we're using it as part of our day-to-day lives, I think it will start to expand and I think it will become the inevitable. I mean, more, more and more of the things that people own will be digital in, in nature. Uh, and that will have ramifications and impl- implications for policing and, and how we ensure those things, how we protect against against theft of those things. And it is such a new space. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how to regulate it and what we should do with it. 
especially uh, the authorities tend to get maybe more worried about money laundering uses of that technology than people who are victims of fraud. The UK, funny enough, is now looking like it's a sort of bit of a leader in regulating cryptocurrencies because it's saying we are going to regulate these things properly and carefully based on consumer protection. And big time investors think that's great. Yeah, we want regulated investments. We, we don't want a Wild West. And so the UK at the moment is trying to position itself as a sort of world leader in responsible regulation. It can be very tempting to think that advancing technology and the threat that that faces should be matched in, in how you combat it. So, But it, almost what we're saying here is the answer to, to coping with that and to preventing the opportunity that presents to criminals isn't other t- technology, it's just people. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll have you'll you'll obviously have a bit of both because you will have when it comes to the sort of AI powered, you know, automated, brilliant hacking machines that we will that we're coming into the world of machines hacking machines without human input and automatically scanning for vulnerabilities, and we'll have AI powered defense systems as well that are yeah. constantly running, and and that's one of the reasons why companies really do have to. And I'm not trying to pitch that I'm not trying to pitch businesses here, but Smaller companies really do have to outsource this to service providers because they are the ones that will have the sort of AI capabilities to fight the AI adversaries. But at the core of it all, it still seems, and I think this was one of your, maybe one of your reports that found this, cybersecurity professionals will often talk about the various threats that they see coming, but it still is nearly always employee error that is the first way in. And that employee error is usually because of an emotional weakness, a sort of a soft point. You're in a rush. You've been tricked. You've been fooled. And so your first line of defense is one of those basics. And and, and I really feel like educating people about the emotional impact of cybersecurity breaches is important because it is an emotional thing that, that these criminals are trying to pull on you. So the more you can talk about when you've been a victim, the more you can talk about the way they employ classic psychological tricks on you as well, make you think you're in a rush, hook into the latest news story, make you think you're talking to the CEO and you'll get in trouble if you don't do this quickly. That is how they get you. So if you can sort of teach people in the context of those stories and those mistakes and every time you are hacked into, use that as a learning opportunity, that I think is more valuable than... You're just your sort of abstract, let's all sit down for our cybersecurity awareness day today. So that's that's basically my sort of philosophy on it. Think about it as an emotional attack and you need some emotional defenses as well. And how can you connect to, connect it with people? Because most people think it won't happen to me. I'm too smart and yeah. all the rest of it. And that's what you've got to get around. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I really like this idea that the answer to preventing fraud and to making the average employee or consumer more aware is actually you know making them more self-aware self-aware of their own emotions of how they're ex- like how they're experiencing uh, an email and how they feel about yeah a phone call exactly yeah so exactly. that they can question it like that that's a really interesting yeah. kind of di- exactly exactly yeah. and i can and i can let you in on a sort of a secret here about the the big project that i've been doing for a long time the, the missing crypto queen and maybe some of the people listening have, have have heard that or which has turned into this epic four five year thing i've been working on now trying to hunt down this um german bulgarian scammer who basically tricked a million people into investing 4 billion euros into a fake cryptocurrency and then went on the run 
and she's still on the run. And actually, last year, and, and and I've been looking for her now for four years. And last year, she was added to the FBI's ten most wanted list. She's now the most wanted woman in the world. And um, I, I still haven't found her. But you know, if anyone listening knows where she is, get in touch. <laughs> I'll share. I'll share the FBI's two hundred and fifty thousand dollar reward with you. Um, people really trusted her because she had a, a degree from Oxford. She had a, a PhD from a top German university. She worked at McKinsey's for five years. She looked the part. She was glamorous. She spoke fluently on stage. People didn't really understand the technology she was selling, but she sounded and looked legitimate. And that is why they trusted her because they, they were ordinary people that didn't understand cryptocurrencies. People were really sucked in by the fear of missing out. You could tell someone until you were blue in the face that this is a scam and they just wouldn't believe you because they were so wrapped up in this idea that they were going to get rich very, very quickly. And the only thing that seemed to stop people was essentially to an emotional story about how you'd lost all your money in this scam. Yeah, and that's why I think it resonated that podcast with a lot of people because they didn't realize they were also being taught about how to spot a crypto scam. They yeah. thought they were just listening to a story about a woman on the run. Yeah. I think there's a there's a there's a lesson there as well for cybersecurity more generally. Absolutely tapping into that emotional layer. We are emotional beings at the end of, at the end of the day and that's what we're most receptive to. Cool. So when can we expect the next update on that? Now we are working on it and we should have a new episode soon. We started working on this in late 2018, and it started off, we thought, as a it's a crypto scam story. It's an interesting and bizarre story of a, a pyramid scheme that was pretending to be a cryptocurrency. But the more we've looked into it, the more we found basically elements of organized crime sitting behind it, somehow involved in it. And I don't really, I'm not comfortable with, and I'm not an expert in investigating organized crime. It's not what I really do. Uh, and it's become very hard for us at the BBC, the team of us working on this, to sort of break through and get into that world. Because organized criminals don't tend to come and talk to the BBC. You can't get into it. It's a wall yes. of silence. And to move the story on requires trying to understand sort of Bulgarian organized crime groups, which is really difficult. So we are we are still working on it, but it's yeah, it's become very, very difficult. It's again, I suppose that is a bit of a lesson for cybercrime more generally, which is often it isn't just uh the person in the basement with the hoodie. There's sometimes serious organized criminal groups behind this because that's where the money is. And that's why it's so difficult to stop because they're sophisticated, they're wealthy, they're connected, they're networked, they operate all over the world. They're corrupt. They often yeah. work in corrupt countries where they're allowed to operate freely because they're bribing governments. And this is one of the reasons why cybercrime is so hard to fight. It's a it's big business. I've often been asked about my personal safety. Like, mm. are you worried about this? And the the response is always, but these are businesses. They're not stupid. They're not going to kill a BBC journalist. That would be the silliest business move they could possibly do. Yeah. They don't think like that. They're thinking strategically. What's the risk? What's the payoff for this? So uh, they are businesses and they're big businesses. And, and that's why uh, the crypto queen is slow. And that's why I'm still working on it. But it, and it's also why cybercrime is going to be around forever because yeah. it's it's a trillion dollar business. It's not going to go away. 
that's been a really interesting conversation, Jamie. Thanks so much for spending the time with us this morning. I think for me, the, the biggest takeaway is, is where we kept coming back to that kind of consumer education piece and that emotional kind of component to that and how that's so important. And I think, you know, that's certainly something um, in my day-to-day role, I'm looking forward to kind of exploring more with, with our clients and maybe starting to wrap that into kind of how we how we support our clients. Because I think it's certainly an angle that that we need to be going down more generally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, me too. I've got I've got more to learn on this as well. But I think for me, the next few months and years is going to be really about what are the messages that work for people? Yeah. How do we get people yeah. to, to wise up? Because we can talk about it, but are they actually going to do it? And that to me is the big challenge for, for, for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jamie, thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the TransUnion podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as as I have making it. If you want to find out some more information about what we do here at TransUnion, please go to transunion.co.uk and uh, hope to see you on the next one. This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.